This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm John Dickerson in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, continuing challenges for the Biden administration as the country struggles to meet the president's self-imposed deadlines. It seems like everyone is hiring these days, but we're still running 7.6 million jobs behind where we were at the start of the pandemic. We can't reboot the world's largest economy like flipping on a nice light switch. One of President Biden's solutions, a massive infrastructure bill aimed at accelerating the recovery and repairing the nation's roads and bridges. We'll talk with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. And it's one more reminder, just like the Colonial Pipeline incident was, of how much we depend on critical infrastructure. But as negotiations with Republicans slog along, will Democrats have to go it alone? Mr. President, are you willing to walk away from an infrastructure deal? And if so, will they all be on board? I hear all the folks on TV saying, why doesn't Biden get this done? Well, because Biden only has a majority of effectively four votes in the House and a tie in the Senate with two members of the Senate who vote more with my Republican friends. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin wants to make a deal with the GOP. We'll talk with him about it. Another campaign that's plodding along, the push for 70% of Americans to get at least one shot by July 4th. This is all about encouraging others uh, that are on the fence to get vaccinated. Get a shot and have a beer. Not one, not two, not three, not four, but five drawings for a million dollars. And with the publication of hundreds of emails from Dr. Anthony Fauci, new questions about the origin of the COVID-19 virus. We'll break those down with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb and check in on the economic recovery with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. Finally, a conversation with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We've got a lot to get to today, but we begin by welcoming our first guest back into the studio, the first time in nearly 15 months. It's the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. Good morning, Mr. Secretary. It's good to be in your company. Um, Let's start with this infrastructure bill. Where do things stand? The president's been negotiating with Republicans. He says he's going to keep going. Where do things stand? So uh, on Friday, there was uh, another counteroffer from the Republicans uh, represented, I think, about $50 billion in movement, but really did not meet the president's objectives in terms of what we need to do for a generational investment. Remember, this is not just about getting through this season or uh, some kind of short-term stimulus. This is about making sure that America wins the future at a time when our competitors like China and our allies 
are investing much more, frankly, in infrastructure than we are. That's why it calls for such a big step. Now, the president's going to speak again with Senator Capito, who's been uh, a leader in the negotiations on the Republican side. They're going to speak on Monday. There are a lot of conversations going on among a lot of members of the, of the Senate and over on the House side. On Wednesday, there's going to be a markup for a key part, a key element of infrastructure policy. So lots going on right now, uh, but still lots of daylight, honestly, between us and our Republican friends. Let me talk about that daylight. In a Senate where you need 60 votes to beat a filibuster, don't the Republicans basically have all the leverage in these negotiations? Well, we've got to remember that uh, right now the American people are with us. The American people want us to act. Uh, They believe in the need to invest in not just roads and bridges, but uh, making sure that it's more affordable to be an American, building up our care infrastructure. And the American people are with us in terms of how we want to pay for this, uh, which is by ensuring that corporations and the wealthy pay their fair share. Uh, So we think there is a very strong wind at our back. And we've seen a lot of Republicans, uh, certainly around the country, but also a lot of Republicans in office, state their interest in doing something real on infrastructure. We've just got to see if we can actually get it into enough of an overlapping consensus that we can get a bill done together, because the president strongly prefers a bipartisan approach. But he prefers a bipartisan approach, but he has no other option. Well, uh, look, uh, as uh, our Democratic friends remind us, uh, there is another way, but our strong preference uh, is to do this uh, on a bipartisan basis, especially because it's a bipartisan priority. There- you know, it was a famous mayor who once said that there's no such thing as a Democratic or Republican hole in the road. Right. And everybody loves a ribbon cutting ceremony, which is why it's uh, you've got a little bit of a chance in getting those 10 Republicans. But the, the reason I focus on which way you can do this is because the president's getting some heat from his left and they're saying, well, why doesn't he just go it alone? Why doesn't he just go his own way and do this with only Democratic votes? And because this, as you've said, is key to your view of, of how to spur the economy. But the fact is, you can't go it alone. And if you recognize that fact, it does change the way people think about what's possible here in terms of this signature economic piece of legislation. Well, that's right. There are 50 Democratic senators who think for themselves. Uh, You can't simply assume that uh, all of them are going to come on board with something unless we work through it together. And uh, that's why there are so many Republican and Democratic senators in the conversations that we're having right now. Now, I think at the end of the day, it's... Um, it's going to be tough for uh, this country to understand why Republicans would filibuster a good infrastructure bill. Uh, But we want to get there uh, in a better way than uh, uh, what's happened to a lot of issues that have just gotten completely stuck, especially because there is such bipartisan interest in doing something real. Do you feel like in these negotiations there comes a point where, where people accuse the other side of not acting in good faith? Do you think Republicans are negotiating in good faith on this? I'll tell you, every conversation I've been part of, there has been a lot of goodwill. It's been honest. It's been above board. We have big disagreements, that's for sure, but we're very candid about them. For example, on the pay-for side, uh, they sincerely believe that the core corporate tax cuts and the tax cuts on the wealthy that happened under the last administration were a good policy and an important achievement to them. We might not agree, might not even understand it sometimes, but uh, when we talk about these things, it's in a very straightforward fashion as we try to find where there's some overlap. It's why the president's reminded them uh, that there are other areas that surely uh, Republicans can agree to as well on the tax side, like enforcement, to at least make sure that you don't have giant corporations making billions in profits paying zero, which is part of what's happened and part of why we're struggling to pay for important things in this country. On that question of paying for it, is it that the president, I was a little confused about whether the president has basically taken the idea of raising taxes on corporations off the table. 
That's still on the table. That's right. That's still in our plan. And, and remember, what we're calling for here is a 20, 28% rate. Most of my life, it's been 35, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes higher. And the American business sector has been very competitive. Uh, so we're not calling for high taxes. We're calling for a reasonable rate of 28. But well, let's acknowledge that in, in our plan, in the president's plan, that's not one of the elements that's likely to get much Republican support because they're so committed to those corporate tax breaks uh, from uh, the, uh, President Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So what's something that we might be able to agree on? Well, uh, how about the idea that we have enough enforcement to get companies paying uh, what at least is the sticker rate that they're responsible for? And the remarkable announcement with the G7 led by this administration uh, and Secretary Yellen, uh, that we're going to end this race to the bottom uh, by getting uh, the, the G7 countries to agree to a global minimum tax. So the idea is corporations would pay at least 15% and they couldn't go race to some other country to get a lower tax rate. Right, because the system right now creates a real incentive to park your profits and, and sometimes even your jobs overseas. Let me ask you a question that there have been, there was another cyber attack this week, another ransomware attack. We've seen how vulnerable, you mentioned it in the tape we played. As Secretary of Transportation, how much are you thinking about the threat from cyber threats and what are you doing to counteract them? Yeah, it's a real concern and we're paying close attention to it. Now, in terms of securing the transportation system we have, of course, a lot of that uh, is with Homeland Security and and our partners uh, on that side. But we're thinking a lot about how to make sure that we build up transportation uh, that's going to be resilient in the future, as well as that the right kind of communication is happening. Remember, transportation, like our water systems, like a lot of our power systems, quite a bit of it is in private hands or local hands. And part of our vulnerability on cybersecurity is you're only as strong as your weakest link. And so we've got to make sure there are good cyber practices uh, all the way down to the smallest player, uh, any individual company, because what Colonial showed us was a cyber attack on a private company had national implications. All right. Secretary Buttigieg, thank you so much for literally being with us. Yesterday, we spoke with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, now the director of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. We began our conversation with the recent cyber attacks in the U.S. The FBI director, Christopher Wray, told The Wall Street Journal this week that the ransomware threat was comparable to the challenge of global terrorism in the days after September 11th. Do you agree? Well, there's certainly some similarities, but I do think we need to have a a talk as an international community with these countries, like the Russians, for instance, to say, uh, if criminal uh, ransomware activities are coming out of your country, why don't we have intelligence cooperation, law enforcement cooperation to shut it down and to, in that way, test uh, the uh, reality of how much the Russian government uh, is or is not involved? President Biden is considering retaliating or punishing the Russians for just exactly what you're talking about. Well, I would certainly hope that uh, the president has uh, made clear to President Putin that this is just unacceptable. I mean, we've had attacks that have really, really uh, gone after our infrastructure in important ways. These are serious infrastructure attacks that could shut down an economy. And so uh, I think a very tough conversation with the Russians about their obligations under these circumstances is very much warranted. It's not just the Russians. The attack came from inside China on the New York subway system. What kinds of challenges does that pose for an administration and what kind of skills do they need if this is going to be a chronic ongoing problem? Well, I thought the director race started in the right place, which is every company, every organization, uh, every infrastructure organization really needs to redouble its efforts uh, not to be vulnerable. 
This is different than terrorism in the sense that the portal is not owned by the United States government. It is a a private portal. It's an open portal called the Internet. And I've always been struck, John, that it seems to me sometimes that the private sector and the government don't speak the same language here about what needs to be done. If you're going to be able to attribute an attack, for instance, that very often isn't a matter of physical uh, signature. It's a matter of marrying intelligence with what we know. So um, if we're going to survive this, then we're going to have much have to have much better cooperation between uh, the government and the private sector. Let me switch to China. Do you think that the next age of U.S. national security challenges is really one centered around the relationship and tensions with China? Well, certainly the the great rival now is uh, China. and uh, But it's different than the Cold War because uh, during the Cold War, our great rival, the Soviet Union, was a military giant, but it was frankly a technological midget and uh, economically completely isolated from the international economy. Uh, China is very different. It is a technological uh, giant. It is increasingly uh, seeking military capabilities that look as if they are trying to change the balance in the Asia-Pacific. So it's a different kind of challenge, but it's one that I think can be met President Biden is looking into how the pandemic started, and he is looking into the idea it may have started at the Wuhan lab. What advice would you give him about trying to get actual answers about what happened? Well, the first thing is to recognize uh, that there was too much um, of a tendency early on to dismiss this possibility of uh, a laboratory leak. And um, I think there was a lot, and I think the press bears some responsibility for this. Uh, Well, it had to be um, animal-to-human transmission. These were conspiracy theories about a laboratory leak. And in fact, uh, some of the evidence was right in front of our faces. Uh, We know that there were State Department diplomats who uh, inspected, so to speak, uh, that laboratory and came back and said that the safety practices were substandard. Uh, when we knew that there were patients back in November that had suspicious uh, symptoms, uh, maybe that was a time to start asking tough questions. And uh, I think we perhaps didn't uh, say enough about the problems of the WHO uh, going in and allowing the Chinese to control Uh, the territory uh, while they were trying to investigate. So uh, now, better late than never, I'm glad we are fully looking at this. I'm not sure we'll ever know fully the story, uh, but putting uh, pressure on the Chinese, uh, taking this to the United Nations, raising the profile of what China needs to do to help us get this right. I was actually national security advisor when SARS hit, And it was the same problem. We knew something was happening. We couldn't get answers from the Chinese. And so if we're not going to keep repeating this problem, and this one had much more devastating consequences, uh, then uh, we're going to have to be a a little bit more uh, aggressive with the Chinese about the need to cooperate. But I I think we made a mistake uh, earlier on in, um, in many, many people, many officials dismissed this possibility. Were the officials in the response, were they too accommodating of of China in the sense that early on we were told the Chinese are on top of it? I can't imagine during the Cold War a U.S. government ever saying, well, the Russians have told us they're on the case, everything's fine. Were we too trusting of the Chinese? No, it's a really good point, John. In fact, um, 
I think there were even those who said that President Trump's uh, early decisions about uh, border closures and travel restrictions uh, were uh, xenophobic or, or not appropriate. Turns out they were incredibly appropriate. But uh, yes, maybe there was a little bit too much of trusting of the Chinese. I, I'm, I'm going to give people a break, too, during this time. When you're in the middle of one of these unfolding crises, you don't really know what's going on. Uh, but I would, uh, given what we experienced with SARS, and oh, by the way, with avian flu as well in the early 2000s, um, I don't think it was worth uh, trusting that the Chinese were being transparent about what was going on there. We'll have more of our conversation with Secretary Rice in our next half hour. Coming up next, Dr. Scott Gottlieb will have fresh reporting about the investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. Don't go away. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We want to welcome back former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb to our studio. He has not been with us in person in Washington since March 2020. Dr. Gottlieb is also on the board of Pfizer and his upcoming book is Uncontrolled Spread, why COVID-19 crushed us, and how we can defeat the next pandemic. Welcome, Scott. Good to see you. Very glad you're here. Let's begin with this week, uh, thousands of emails of uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, were released. What did you make of those emails? I didn't think there was anything remarkable in those emails. I certainly don't think there was anything that Tony sent that expressed any ill intent, um, and nothing really that was new from the standpoint of what we already knew. I do think, though, that some of the discussion that went on in those emails evidences a larger issue, which is that early on, the email that's being focused on is a so-called smoking gun, if you will, is an email Tony received from some really good scientists suggesting that they felt this could have been an engineered pathogen early on. They were basing that assessment on their analysis of the sequence strain of the virus. So they were virologists looking at the virus itself. It was reasonable to draw conclusions based on an evaluation of the sequence because that was largely the best piece of information we had. As time evolved and as more virologists looked more carefully at this, the judgment of the scientific community is there's actually nothing that remarkable about this virus. All of the genetic diversity as seen in the virus could have been derived from nature. There are some unusual features, don't get me wrong, but they are still things that we could have found in nature. So their initial analysis was based on the analysis of the sequence their current analysis is also based on an analysis of the sequence. And what, what is lost in this is that there's a broader mosaic here. You know, we have other information now that fits into this picture. The science is one piece of information, but there's a lot of other information that points in a direction that this could have come out of a lab, that we need to have a broader view about the potential risk that this was a lab leak. So it seems like we've got two baskets of inf- One is we're all still trying to figure out how this started. And these emails from the early period give us some window and insight into that. 
And and that's what you're talking about, the virologists who made that initial right. determination. And then there's kind of a side political fight that's going on about Dr. Fauci. And the claim appears to be that that he was not um, uh, forthcoming about the idea that it might have been from a lab leak in his discussions within the administration and in the other work he was doing. And some people have looked at these emails and said that that it suggests that. Well, I w- Go ahead. Yeah, I was told at that time, back in the spring, um, that Dr. Fauci had gone over to a meeting of world health leaders in Europe around the World Health Assembly and actually briefed them on the information that they were looking at, that this could have been a potential lab leak, that this strain looked unusual. So those discussions were going on. And I was told that by a very senior official in the Trump administration. I've reconfirmed that conversation that happened you know, at the time contemporaneously with, uh, with that meeting over a year ago. Uh, So I think early on when they looked at the strain, they had suspicions and in a closer analysis, and it takes time to do that analysis, dispelled some of those um, suspicions. But I think the broader issue here for me is that we look at these things through the lens of science um, and we don't necessarily look at it through the lens of national security. And a scientific mindset looks at the virus and the virus's behavior and its sequence and draws a conclusion. A national security assessment looks at that as one piece of evidence, but then looks at the ch- behavior of the Chinese government, looks at the behavior of the lab, looks at evid- other evidence around the lab, including the infections that we now know took place. And that changes the overall assessment. So the virologists who are now still focused on saying, we don't think this was a lab source, they're still, I think, looking at this through the lens of what does the sequence look like? What does the virus look like? That is just one piece of evidence. And I think this is partly why these kinds of assessments need to be in the hands of the national security apparatus, not just the scientific community. So because you've been focused, as we talked about last week, the whole reason this question of where it started from is important is not because it could have changed the way the U.S. approached the virus at that time, but for what we do going forward. And so what it sounds like you're saying is that there were mistakes made not out of ill intent, but just a kind of too narrow view of how to look at these kinds of things. And if we're going to face another one of these, as we surely will, we need to, as a country, need to broaden our view. I think that that's right. Historically, the view it was the CDC has this, that this is, you know, responding to a pandemic or an outbreak, whether it's SARS-1 or Ebola or Zika, was something that the CDC did. And so the the tools of national security weren't deeply engaged at the outset. Um, I think going forward now, looking at these kinds of risks, we need to judge them through the lens of a national security mindset. Public health preparedness is a matter of national security. And if you bring the national security officials in at the outset of these kinds of investigations, they look at the mosaic. They look at the totality of the evidence. Now, they, they will weigh heavily the judgment of the virologists and what is the sequence telling us, but they won't look at that as the only piece of evidence. And what I see in the emails that Tony Fauci was sending back and forth with the scientists, where they were, they were debating the characteristics of the sequence. And once they assured themselves that the sequence looked fairly, not normal, but the things that were in it were, were things that could be found in nature and could be the result of just reassortment in nature, their belief that this could have been an engineered strain started to subside. And that's what you saw. You saw the evolution of that thinking, but that thinking was derived from looking at the virus itself. Right. Not some other reason. Let me ask you about this term gain of function. We've heard that come up in this, that gain of function research was going on at the lab and that that is somehow connected to the U.S. government or even Dr. Anthony Fauci. What's your assessment of that? Well, look, I I don't think that um, gain of function research, if this did come out of a lab, so big if, 
it doesn't necessarily need to be the product of deliberate engineering. If they had a novel strain of coronavirus, and we know that the WIV was the referral center for coronaviruses, so if the Chinese had discovered a novel strain of coronavirus, it probably would have been sent to the WIV for further evaluation. We know that that Wuhan Institute of Virology was doing experiments where they were trying to infect transgenic animals, animals with fully human immune systems, to look at the behavior of coronaviruses in people, in, and, in models. And they do that so that they can fight tougher... Right, uh, so they can figure out how it works and then they can try to develop drugs and vaccines against it. The process of doing that, the process of growing a vaccine in, in mammalian cell cultures, which is what they would have tried to do if they had a novel strain, and the process of then infecting transgenic animals would make it more humanized. So you don't need to deliberately try to engineer features into the virus to end up with a virus that you might have taken from an animal and then it became more humanized in the process of just experimenting with it. And we know that there were some outbreaks of unusual coronaviruses that the Chinese still haven't released. I mean, a, a real material fact here is the evidence that the Chinese government has not released. They Early on, they released a lot of inf information that really helped our response, particularly clinical information. But subsequent to that, they've held on to a lot of information. And probably will continue to. Dr. Gottlieb, thanks for being with thanks us. Thanks <laughs> Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our conversation now with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, now director of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. What's your opinion about whether there should be a commission to look into the events of January the 6th? Well, we somehow need to look into the events of January 6th. Look, it was a terrible stain on our democracy. We have a really terrific system it was tested on that day. We need to understand what happened with security. We need to understand uh, the nature of that test. Um, the sad thing is I testified before the 9-11 Commission. Uh, we also had uh, the Iraq Study Group, which was another group of, uh, of uh, citizens, uh, eminent citizens, who helped us understand what was going wrong uh, in Iraq. And so we have a tradition of these uh, citizens, these um, elders, if you will, of the country uh, to help us through times like this. The problem right now is there isn't enough trust in Washington to get this done in a way that everybody will uh, will trust the process. We do need to know what happened on January 6th. But it wasn't both sides. The Republicans blocked the, the commission. So it's it does well, seem look, like the problem is there just isn't John, there just isn't enough trust in the Congress right now uh, because we have constant discussions about, you know, how am I going to simply push you aside and do what I want to do? So uh, let's just recognize that we are not in uh, 2004 when the 9-11 uh, Commission was constituted and worked and uh, try to find a way to get to. Um, a, a set of answers about what happened on, on January 6th. I would prefer that this were not the case, but maybe we have to think about ways to do this outside of our electoral bodies. As we debate how to look at January 6th, there's also a debate in America about how we teach America's history. You knew one of the, the students who died at the Birmingham Baptist Church. Okay. Explain for me how you see that part of American history, also uh, the Tulsa massacre and other parts of America's civil rights history and also America's exceptionalism that you were tasked with promoting across the globe. American history um, was in part um, shaped at its very beginning by this birth defect of slavery. Do I wish that the anti-slave forces had won out? Absolutely. But they didn't. 
And then we had, after the uh, emancipation, we had uh, Reconstruction, which gave way to Jim Crow. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I was eight before my family could go to a movie theater or to a restaurant. I didn't have a white classmate until we moved to Denver when I was 12. So, yes, I know America's uh, troubled past. And that troubled past continues to have an impact uh, going forward on how we see each other. When I hear the talk about structural racism, it really gives me pause. And it gives me pause because it doesn't tell me what to do. Um, if we could talk about the impact of race on uh, various aspects of our life. I have family members who uh, were victims of sickle cell. Uh, that was an orphan disease for a long time and it affected mostly black people. Uh, what do we think about medical outcomes that clearly are still disproportionate? Can we finally agree that our uh, K-12 education system is really serving poor kids and, and minority kids uh, very badly? Can we agree that uh, we actually have a choice system? Because if uh, you uh, are of means, you will move to a district where the schools are good. You will go... Uh, and by the way, the houses will be expensive. So that's a choice. You can send your kids to private schools. So those are choices. So who really doesn't have choice? Poor kids and many of them are minority kids. So there are these impacts of race that I think are worth examining. I want kids to know about Tulsa. I also want them to know what that black community did to overcome that horrible massacre. I want them to know about 63 in Birmingham. But I want them to know that the mayor of Birmingham today is a black man who grew up in a poor community. So I want them to see the forward progress of America as well on these issues. And I want us as a country to do it together because uh, I don't want this to be black against white, my weaponization of my identity against yours. And just one quick point of clarification. Your point about structural racism is not that it doesn't exist, but that the term itself doesn't get you as far as you would like. Well, I just, John, I've, I've ceased to, to use it because I don't know what it means anymore. And I think it's become a barrier uh, to do. I think that there are impacts of race uh, that are clear in uh, American life. Absolutely. But, you know, the other problem with it is it sounds so big and impenetrable as if we have to jettison the system somehow. And with all of its problems, having been all over the world and having seen how people deal with difference, I will tell you that America deals with difference better than any country I've ever visited. All right. Secretary Condoleezza Rice, thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure to be with you. The full interview with Secretary Rice is available on our website at facenation.com. We'll be right back with Senator Joe Manchin. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. We turn now to Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Good morning, Senator. Good morning, John. How are you? Doing all right this morning. A lot of Democrats say that you are standing in the way of their priorities, and one of them appears to be the president. He said earlier this week in Tulsa, talking about the frustration of getting things passed, he said two members of the Senate who vote more with my Republican friends. Depending on how you see it, he was either 
being honest about the limitations on what he can get done, or he's saying you're standing in the way of his agenda? Well, I think that was taken out of content, John. Uh, the president knows how the Senate works better than probably any senator setting today, or as well as any senator sitting today. He understands we're a deliberate body because we're supposed to be a deliberate body to cool things off that come from the House. That's what we're doing. We're looking every way we can to bring this country together and unite the country. That's what I'm doing. And I think anybody, whether it be a Democrat or a Republican, that's sitting today in the Senate know who I, knows who I am. And I've always been about bipartisanship. I've always tried to work in a bipartisan way, and I've voted in a bipartisan way in the last 10 years of the Senate. So I'm doing what I have always done. Let's unite this country. We don't need to be divided any further. What the White House would say is on an issue, let's say, infrastructure, which is key to the president's economic agenda, what they would say is there's a way to do this with Democrats alone. It's the same method that was used to pass President Trump's tax cut. But you won't agree to do that. And since you won't agree to do that, it takes all of the leverage away from the White House. Now, in order to pass an infrastructure package, it requires 60 votes to get past the filibuster. So it's not just that you're, you want bipartisanship. They would argue what you're doing is basically putting all the negotiating leverage in the hands of those 10 Republicans that would be needed for the president to pass anything. Uh, we need to work within the framework of what we have. There's ways that we can uh, you know, move forward. Let me say this. There's been seven brave Republicans that have spoken out. They have voted, whether it be impeachment of the wrongdoings of the president, uh, whether it be for a commission. We have to continue to keep striving to make sure that we can get to that 10. And that's why we're called the deliberate body. We keep working towards that goal. Well, I guess I, I'll, let's focus on those on those seven, because the, the argument is that the Senate has changed so much that the institution Joe Biden knew when he started in the 70s just doesn't exist and that your desire for bipartisanship is a part of an older Senate. And people might use in furtherance of that argument a quote from you. You talked about the Republicans who voted against a January 6th commission. You said they were choosing to put politics and political elections above the health of our democracy. You called it unconscionable and you said it's a betrayal of the oath we each take. Leader McConnell has said he's focused 100 percent on blocking the Biden agenda. So the argument would be if that's their position, what gives you any hope that they're ever going to come over to anything that President Biden wants? Well, I, I, I think that my Republican friends and colleagues see the deadlock also. This is not something they desire or wish. Why they haven't been able to break from, uh, from Leader McConnell or the minority leader today, uh, it's, they're going to have to dig deep into their soul, uh, the oath that we take and why we're there. Uh, I can say this, that I will commend uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer for agreeing in a, in a commission that was truly, absolutely more bipartisan than anything I've ever seen. And they did that in the spirit of trying to get Republicans to vote. You can say, well, that failed, so we give up. I don't think you give up on the first try just because you fell on something that you know you did right. And I'm thinking that there's Republicans that know that the concessions were made was the right thing to do to try to start healing our country. We can't heal and unite this country if we don't know for sure what divided this country. And to have an insurrection that most every Democrat and Republican sat there together watch happening from the inside of that Capitol should have been enough of an alarm of saying, this is the first time in the history of our country, anything, anything coming close to this, even the Civil War, the, the, the form of government that we have was approached. Let me ask you about voting rights, which is another issue. Uh, you have a, an op-ed in the Charleston Gazette today. Again, it's an issue you want bipartisanship on. When you talk about deliberation and the Senate slow moving being one of its great functions, Democrats would say, 
while you're waiting for bipartisanship, what's happening in the states is 300 or so bills promoted by Republicans to limit voting rights, changes in the ability to uh, overturn elections if Democrats win. They say you can't wait while that's happening in the states for voting rights to pass by a bipartisan margin in the Senate. Well, John, we have two bills before us, okay? We have the Voting Rights Act, which has passed over five times in our history here since 1965 in the most bipartisan way. And now we name it appropriately the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We can expand that to all 50 states. We can do so much more with that. And it's starting out to be bipartisan. I have Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska signed on in a bipartisan way. And we can work on that one, which truly does protect the voting rights. But I guess, Senator... Before the People Act is much greater... If, if I could just interrupt, you know politics and how it works. Why would Republicans, when they're making all these gains in the state houses and achieving their goals in the states, why would they vote for a bill someday in the Senate that's going to take away all the things they're achieving right now in those state houses? John, they achieved what they've achieved before they weren't thinking they had to make changes. Why in the world would they want to make changes that basically subvert? Because I can tell you what goes around comes around. It could be more damaging to them, too. The bottom line is the fundamental purpose of, 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 of our democracy is the freedom of our elections. If we can't come to agreement on that, God help us, John. And someone's got to fight for this. And we've got to say, listen, the divided country that we're in today, the insurrection that we saw January the 6th, if we don't try to heal that, if we don't make every effort and go beyond the call of duty, then what are we and who are we? We've been known to go around the world and promote democracy and observe other elections. What kind of credibility do you think we have in doing that today? So I want to fight for this, and I think the Republicans will fight for this and understand we must come together on a voting rights bill in a bipartisan way. You can't divide our country further by thinking you've given leeway to one or the other. And if they think they're going to win by subverting and oppressing people from voting, they're going to lose. I'll assure you they will lose. All right, Senator Manchin, the sands have run through the hourglass. We're out of time. Thanks so much for being with us. Face Nation will be back in a minute. Just stay with us. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. We turn now to the state of our economy with Bank of America chairman and CEO Brian Moynihan. Good morning. Good morning, John. I want to How are you? Uh, very well, thank you. I want to start with the question of cyber attacks. There have been a whole recent number of them, uh, and we've seen the way in which these ransomware attacks that can affect the economy. How much time are you spending on this, and has your approach to it become, uh, have the stakes increased based on these new recent attacks? Well, in the financial service industry, this has been an issue for many years, and so I, I spent time on it, but frankly, the, the good news is we have a great team, and our spending a year has gone from maybe four or $500 million a year when I first became CEO a little over a decade ago to a billion dollars a year. 2,000-plus people work on it. 
we work in deep cooperation with the rest of the institutions in our industry, but there's more that can be done, and there are suggestions and proposals that are coming out to do more sharing of information, cooperation, speed, and, and things like that, which I think need to be looked at by the current administration and, and Congress and pushed through in order to protect more people. Tell me a little bit about that. Speed in particular seems to be to be crucial in one of these instances. What, what more needs to be done? Well, we, we were able to create a group called the ARC now. It was called the FSARC before, but that's a group of many companies that, that are inside the, the tent, so to speak, sharing information with people that write clearances, and that allows us to move quickly when one person is seeing something and, and share it with others. And I think that kind of cooperation... Uh, is in the most critical industries but needs to continue to be moved to more and more industries over time. Let's switch now to the health of the economy. The jobs report for May was good but not great. Uh, what do you see? You have a special window in on, on people's spending and their consumer habits and, and economic activity. What are you seeing from your vantage point? What's well, a couple of key points about the economy. One is it's predicted to grow. It's the U.S. economy is predicted to grow at 7% this year and 5.5% next year by our team. If you think about that, the economy is now as big as it was pre-pandemic, roughly. Predicted to grow at two to three times the rate over the next couple of years. Our consumers have lots of money in their checking accounts. We think they spent about 65, or they have not spent about 65, 70% of the last couple of rounds of stimulus. Loans are starting to pick up. And there's plenty of borrowing capacity. Companies have unused lines. And the spending by our consumer, which is a trillion four so far this year, is up 20% over 19, and obviously a lot over 20. And what that really tells you is that you're seeing a 10% growth rate, which is a faster growth rate on a bigger amount. So the U.S. economy is really set to go with a couple key risks. One is supply chain dynamics that you, I'm sure you've talked about in your show. And the other is people getting workers. And that bodes well for the unemployment figure, which is starting to drop. And we predict to get in the low to mid fours by year end, which is a pretty strong recovery engineered by the work of the fiscal side, the monetary side, and frankly, private industry. When you focusing on that 20 percent over 19, as you mentioned, 19 was not a pandemic year. So the spending appears to be uh, one of the things that we saw during the pandemic is people were paying down their credit cards, saving money. So do you attribute that 20 percent to essentially what some people call revenge spending or the sort of pent up consumer demand that was out there? I, I think a lot of it has to do with what you're seeing it happen is really reopening uh, across the board. And, and so while certain places, because the infection rates were different and they reopened faster, you've got a pretty universal application now. So even here in Massachusetts where I live, you're seeing people be able to move about. So you're seeing the spending move to domestic travel spending is up dramatically, car rentals, hotels for leisure travel, not business travel yet. That'll probably be late this fall. Uh, is strong, you know, theme park bookings and things like that. Those are all very good signs. And by the way, it's shifting from buying food in the store to more people going to uh, sit-down restaurants, even over quick-service restaurants. So you're seeing that natural behavior, which is I can go out, I can do things, and I can sit down and eat dinner because, frankly, way back when I was first on with Margaret on this question, it's a war against the virus, and America is starting to win through all the great vaccination work that's going on. We're starting to win the war, and it's not over yet. We've got to be careful to get it done, but it's, we're starting to win the war, and that's allowing the economies to reopen, and that's allowing the spending to take place. Let me ask you about small business. Bank of America is the largest lender to small business, more than 400,000 closed during the pandemic. What are you seeing on the small business front, and what kinds of businesses are borrowing and starting to take risks again? 
Well, the, the good news is you're starting to see our in our smallest businesses, which is companies up to five million in revenue, we're seeing the originations actually exceed what they were in 2019 for the month of May. They're a little bit up in April. They're basically flattish in March. So you're seeing it come on, and that's really the reopening in those economies. The businesses that are doing the best are either service-side businesses like doctors, lawyers, and things like that really recover quickly. But now you've seen the supply chain, uh, the people supply in the industry, et cetera, growing faster. One of the things we've got to work on is continue the supply chain. And I think that's when we ask our small business, what's on your mind? In the fall, it was all about uh, the pandemic. In the spring survey we do, which is millions of businesses we ask the question to, it's all about getting workers and getting their supplies. So they have things to sell and manufacture to sell to their customers. And, and, and that's something that's straightening out, but will take a little time. And do you worry about the backlog of people uh, paying their mortgages, those who couldn't during the pandemic? Um, uh, what happens when they lose government assistance? Will they be able to pay those mortgages? Well, the, the good news of Bank of America, it's really a thing of the past. At the high point, we had given customers, 2 million customers, the right not to pay. We're down to a, a fraction of that now, and it's going through the system. So I think even at the in all mortgages are seeing it come down. Okay. So I think there's a little bit of the world has you know, largely recovered, but there's, there's a pockets of things that just have to be dealt with, and, and I'm and sure the companies will deal with them fairly. All right. We've run out of time. Thank you so much, Brian Moynihan, for being with us. Vice President Kamala Harris is heading to Central America today. She's been tasked by President Biden to lead diplomatic efforts in the region to slow the flow of migrants into the United States. Senior White House and political correspondent Ed O'Keefe is covering her trip and reports from Guatemala. Recent American history is repeating itself in Guatemala. Six years ago, then, Vice President Biden came here to meet with Central American leaders in hopes of stopping the flow of migrants. If we don't do this, all of us will feel the consequences. Today, as thousands of Mexicans and Central Americans keep crossing the southern border, Mr. Biden is deploying his vice president, Kamala Harris. She arrives in Guatemala tonight to meet with the world leaders she's discussed the issue with most frequently. Guatemala's president, Alejandro Yamate. What is she like one-on-one? -on -one? She doesn't hold back, which is good. She is frank. We're not on the same side of the coin. We are in agreement in the what, which is something. We're not in agreement in the how. Okay. Yamate says increased border crossings have been caused in part by the change of administrations in Washington. The message changed too. We're going to reunite families and we're going to reunite children. The very next day, the Coyotes were here organizing groups of children to take them to the United States. We asked the United States government to send more of a clear message to prevent more people from leaving. Guatemala is about the size of Ohio, with about 16 and a half million people of all sizes. And most of them never even think of leaving this country. You've got really poor, really wealthy, and millions in the middle who simply want to find a way to live here, want to make it work, have no reason to ever leave. For those who leave or let their children head north, American politics never cross their mind. We don't have water or electricity. We don't have any money to buy food. Harris cites a poor economy, violence fueled by the drug trade, and climate change as leading push factors. But she's also raising concerns with the region's long history of government corruption. Yamate says that's misguided. On corruption, who is the biggest corruptor? 
There was someone else more corrupt than, than a government of this size like ours? King. Narco-traffickers. The president told us Harris plans to announce the Justice Department will partner with Guatemalan prosecutors to target drug traffickers and other transnational crimes. Yamate also wants Americans to stop grouping his country with neighboring El Salvador and Honduras, and what many call the Northern Triangle. Is that a fair description? No, it's an insult. It's an insult. Why? There's a mistake being made in the United States. They've always looked at us like their backyard. That's the mistake. We're the front yard, and if the front yard is bad, how will the house be? If you all take care of your front yard, how will your house be? The vice president is scheduled to make a stop here at the National Palace on Monday, and on Tuesday she's holding meetings in Mexico City. But sorting out the roots of the immigration crisis will take far longer than the length of any one American presidency. John? Ed, thanks, and we'll see you next week. Today's guests were Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, Chairman and CEO of Bank of America Brian Moynihan, and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. Eastern, free Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.